Welcome to China in Context. I'm Duncan Bartlett. What forces will shape the economy of China in 2023? The lifting of the zero COVID rules is an important factor. And I'm sure that economists will also be studying the fallout from problems in the property market, as well as the implications of a clash between China and the United States in the tech sector. However, there's another crucial long-term issue which has a profound impact on economics and society. China's population is growing older and, because of a falling birth rate, heading into a long period in which the number of people living in China decreases. Well, I'm pleased to welcome back to the podcast someone who's given this topic considerable thought. He's Paul Hodges, founder of New Normal Consulting, who joins me on the line from Portugal. Paul, welcome back to China in Context. Thank you, Duncan. Now, let's begin by considering the economic challenges China faces this year. I mentioned COVID a moment ago, and we'll be talking about that more with other guests on the podcast in the next few weeks. Then there's the crisis in the housing market. Plus, we know that there are concerns about high energy prices. And on top of all that, there are these profound demographic challenges as China's population ages and shrinks. Given all that, what are your expectations for China's economy this year? I think it's going to be a year of disappointment for a lot of people. Uh, there was a great deal of celebration at the end of last year uh, around the lifting of the zero COVID restrictions. And I think that's going to turn out to be one of those things that you, uh, where, where you, you end up wondering why you wished for it. Because the problem is that the government did it I think, in a panic, because of social unrest, which is always the thing that the Communist Party has feared in uh, China from Tiananmen Square onwards, so massive uh, social unrest, but they hadn't done anything to prepare for going unvaccinated into the future. And we know that the Chinese vaccines don't work very well. So suddenly you've got all of the tier one cities going down, and I, you know, this sounds extreme, but from all the people we talked to, it seems very clear, all the tier one cities, Beijing, Shanghai, and so on, COVID has gone through them uh, like a dose of salts. And next stage of this is going to be that everybody goes home at the end of this month for Lunar New Year. And so we take it into the rural areas. And the problem there is that medical services in the tier one cities are not great, by Western standards, but they're, they're adequate, if you like. Uh, the medical services in the rural areas are terrible, hardly existent in many cases, and of course you've got a much older population. So that is going to be a real issue. And then people will come back after the new year in, in, in February, and what we don't know is will they bring new variants back with them, as happened you know, in the West at that particular point. So. I think that is going to be a very unsettling period where everybody says, oh, this is great. China's back in the world economy. No, it isn't. And then you have this second problem that you, you raised about the issue of real estate. And the crucial thing here is that for the last 20 or 30 years, really 20 years, definitely since joining WTO, China has underinvested in the domestic population and in consumption Instead, it wanted to become the manufacturing capital of the world. And now you have this problem 
that after 20 years, you need to boost consumption, but the only way you've done it up till now is through the real estate bubble, and the real estate bubble has now burst. The problem is that the government has lost credibility on COVID, and therefore people won't go back in the second half of the year to buying empty tower blocks and putting down money for empty or unbuilt apartments, confident that prices will go up. So that game is now over. Well, thank you, Paul. That's a very comprehensive overview of the issues facing China. It's got a population of 1.4 billion people. That makes it the most populous country in the world. And actually, China's now home to the largest population of older people in the world. Now, I'm always a bit reluctant to read out lots of statistics on the radio or on a podcast, because I know that they can be quite hard for listeners to process. But here's a statistic I found from the UN Population Division, which suggests that China is set to become old before it gets rich. The number of those living in its low earning, low spending, 55 years old plus cohort is set to jump by more than 50 percent from around 300 million today to nearly 500 million in 2030. And at the same time, China's low fertility rate means that the number of those in the younger age brackets, 25 to 54, they're going to fall significantly to just around 100 million or more. Can you share your thoughts on how that's going to impact China's economy and its role in the world? In a lot of time, when economists talk about ageing, they tend to talk about healthcare, and they say, oh, my goodness, you know, we're going to have great healthcare. Actually, that's all wrong. You know, what happens is if you have longer life expectancy, the last two years are very expensive. But, but if you do it right, you know, your extra years of life itself don't really have great health expenditure. What they miss all the time because of their models are simply wrong is that spending is concentrated in the 25 to 54 age group. In other words, people have left school, they've got, gone through apprenticeships, they've gone to university, they've come out and they start to get jobs and they start to move up in their careers and they get a bit of money and maybe they marry or they settle down and maybe they have children and they, they buy stuff. So if you look at the baby boom, for example, in the West, what you see is that first of all, you get a lot of demand, which creates inflation, but then as those people go into work, then you begin to rebalance but you have a tremendous boom in demand growth. It's almost impossible to stop it. But once you get to 54, 55, all the data suggests that you already own most of what you need and you're getting older and you're probably maybe thinking about retirement or taking shorter hours or something. So you have less money. So if you have a young population, 20, lots of what we call the wealth creators, 25 to 54 year olds, then you tend to have a very robust economy. On the other hand, if your main population growth is in the over 55s, the perennials, as we call them, very, very nice people, absolutely lovely people, nothing wrong with them at all. But unfortunately, they don't contribute much to economic growth. Now, does this matter? In principle, not if you've got a reasonable standard of living. But of course, as you said, Duncan, China's problem has always been, will it get old before it gets rich? It's had this false boom of property speculation 
So property prices in, Shei, in Shanghai and Beijing are higher in price to earnings ratios than in New York or London. I mean, this is crazy, absolutely crazy, right? But that's how people have got their money. And when you see all these, these cars and so on in, in, on the streets in the tier one cities, you think, oh, they must be very wealthy. They're not very wealthy, they've just speculated. Now the bubble bursts and where are you left? You're left with an aging population that hasn't actually got the earnings to support its lifestyle. You haven't got a good medical system. You haven't got good social security. You haven't got pensions. This is not a good outlook, I'm afraid. That's very interesting. And Professor Steve Sang, who's the director of the SOAS China Institute, often makes the point, Paul, that China is not a welfare state. It may be a socialist country, but it's not a welfare state. Now, the other day I was speaking to a woman from China about the fertility rate, which has fallen continuously for the past four decades. She made a couple of observations. The first was that childcare costs are high, so it's difficult for women to pursue careers and raise children simultaneously. She also said that many women in cities have to leave their children behind in the rural areas with their grandparents because the Hokal system means that they can't access good education where they live. What's the solution for people facing those kind of dilemmas? I'm afraid one of the other ways in which the government has kept wages down is there's over 200 million people of working age who aren't entitled to full residence benefits in the tier one cities. So they are literally a second class citizen. They come in from the rural areas, they want to work, but they're not allowed to have the same medical facilities, the same education facilities. And when they try and set up their own schools, these are often bulldozed down by the city council in order to stop them becoming a drain on the city council uh, costs. There's quite a lot of evidence, unfortunately, for this. So what you've got is a situation where there is no work in the rural areas. So a couple have to come to Beijing or maybe they go, go to the Middle East or somewhere like that to work and they send back money to grandma and granddad. And as you say, there's two things about this. One is that that is a very unstable system because you're separating families and babies and children are growing up with grandparents because they can only talk to their parents by uh, FaceTime or, 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 or whatever. They just see them every year at Lunar New Year. And secondly, uh, unfortunately, the treatment of women in Northeast Asia, and this isn't just a China problem, but you can see that fertility rates across Northeast Asia as a region are the lowest in the world. They're not great anywhere, but it is clearly much more difficult for women to have a career and bring up children and have a decent life and the one thing that goes is having children. So China's birth rate, fertility rate, is actually very low, not just because of the one-child policy, but it's the same as in, in Korea as in Japan. Women just find it too difficult to have children. Now, one of our listeners has been in touch with us with a question. She asks, given the low fertility rate, could China compensate by inviting immigrants to boost the working age population? That's a good question. What's it is a good question, is? isn't it? I mean, <laughs> I mean the, the issue is that if the economy is going well, and this isn't just for China, but generally speaking, people tend to be much more open to immigration. 
In other words, the pie is getting bigger, so I don't mind. But when the economy isn't doing very well, then the pie isn't growing. And so you say, well, if this is, this is a zero sum game. In other words, if I allow you to come in and take some of the wealth in the country, I lose out. I don't like that. Also, of course, the numbers are extraordinarily large. We're talking hundreds of millions here. To make a difference, you've got to compensate for, you know, 150 million people getting much older. To bring in 150 million, you know, where would you get 150 million from? I, I mean, it's a lovely idea, but I don't think it's practical. Well, this decline in the birth rate is not going to change soon, is it? I found a quote in Global Times from Huang Wenzheng, who's a demography expert and a senior researcher at the Center for China and Globalization. They said, it can be predicted that China's birth rate will continue to shrink for more than a century. Well, that makes me wonder about those predictions, which suggest that the Chinese economy will overtake that of the United States. Uh, Xi Jinping said in his New Year message, China stands firmly on the right side of history. Do you have a view on this? Well, you know, I think that one of the problems with the Chinese Communist Party over the years is it tends to talk in slogans rather than in practicalities. And when it gets into a tight corner, it tends to shout its slogans. So it's a pretty good way of understanding where they are, um, that they're not really addressing the issues. They're talking in slogans and saying you either with us or against us. If you look at China's GDP numbers, anybody who looks at them seriously realizes they are fake. China's economy is, first of all, not as large as people would like to believe, as its numbers say. Secondly, it's unfortunately built a lot on property speculation. I mean, 29% of China's economy is built on property speculation. But if you have an aging population, you don't need property speculation. You need a medical system. So I'm afraid, although it's a great story for economists and a great story for investment banks and everything else uh, who want to part you from your money, uh, there's no chance that China is going to do that, unless, of course, the US implodes. But I think we can be fairly confident for the moment, at least, that uh, China is indeed not going to rival the states, probably in our lifetimes. Well, there's lots of good points there, uh, Paul. I don't think the economy of the United States is about to implode. Uh, the predictions are that it'll have a recession, and, but it could be relatively shallow in 2023. Thank you so much for your lively explanation of these issues. That was Paul Hodges, chairman of New Normal Consulting. This podcast is produced by the SOAS China Institute, and you can find out more about our courses and research at soas.ac.uk. But for now, that's all from us here on the China in Context podcast team.